In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Diet Starts Tomorrow, with host Aileen Drexler. I'm having a relationship with my pizza. In a world where wellness looks perfect on Instagram. Just doing my workout. Tuesday's arms and back. But feels anything but in real life. Is butter a carb? Yes. This is the podcast exploring the emotional side of well-being. I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. From people who understand the struggle. I'm on the third day of my cleanse diet. Hello and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I am your host, Aileen, and I have an amazing guest today. April is Stress Awareness Month. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So I thought it'd be great to talk specifically about these topics. So today's guest, Dr. Ellen Vora, is a holistic and board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, yoga teacher, and author of the new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. Welcome to DST, Dr. Vora. Thanks, Eileen. It is great to be here. I am very excited to talk about anxiety, seeing as I have much of it. So I would love to hear, what does it mean, first of all, to be a holistic or functional psychiatrist? Because I've, this is the first time I've heard of the two together. So I'd love to hear that from you. Yeah. I mean, I struggle to define it. It basically means I'm a weird psychiatrist, <laughs> but I went through medical school. I went through psychiatry residency, came away from those, you know, that decade of my life, deeply disenchanted with how our medical system meets the needs of our mental health struggles as a population. I feel like there was room for improvement. So I went on to do a lot of additional training in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and functional medicine, psychedelics. And now when I meet a patient, I'm considering the whole portrait of their life, not just thinking of mental health from the neck up, like it's just brain chemistry and thoughts and behaviors, but I'm really thinking about mental health as a function of our gut health and inflammation throughout the whole body and our sleep and our nutrition, but then also our fundamental human needs for things like community and connection and a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. So I'm taking that all into consideration, and that's why I call it holistic. Functional is sort of a specific concept of root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. Okay, got it. So what what interested you in this specific path versus the non-functional or the medical approach? Is that the right terminology? Yeah, I think this functional. <laughs> I'm a cliche of the holistic medical space in that I got here through my own health struggles and my own um, sort of coming up against the ways allopathic medicine wasn't helping me. And so I had that firsthand experience of this is not helping. And yet, when I go on Google and find all of these wild, wild west approaches to healing, that's what's outclassing the allopathic interventions. So I came by it through my own process alongside learning how to help my patients. So it was kind of these parallel processes of being like, this isn't working, this is working with myself and with my patients. Um, and, you know, I was in medical school. I remember being on my surgery rotation. 
and standing over an appendectomy. So we're removing someone's appendix. And I just remember asking the surgeon, because you're, you're kind of shooting the shit while you're doing this surgery. And I was like, why do you think people get appendicitis? And I was like, this dude has given this a lot of thought because he spent hundreds of hours of his life standing over appendectomies. And he just looked at me and with a really dismissive tone was like, we don't ask why, we just cut. And wow. for me, that like encapsulated the problem is like Western medicine is amazing at reacting to a problem. And thank goodness for that. If you have a heart attack, if you have a car accident, it's fantastic that we can swoop in and heroically rescue someone when the shit hits the fan. But we don't seem to be asking enough, why is this shit hitting the fan when it comes to chronic disease, when it comes to chronic inflammatory conditions? And that's where, I mean, I'm like a Jew from New York. I just think that I'm all about asking why. I only ever want to just keep asking the questions. And so I, I wanted to, like, I want to know what causes appendicitis. I want to know what contributes to depression and anxiety. And that's the approach that I take. Interesting. That's a very unique story about the appendix doctor. It's funny because I, in, when I was 10 years old, I've always had like sort of stomach gut issues. And when I was 10, I had severe pain and they almost... I had to go to the hospital and they almost removed my appendix. Like I was, had to drink that drink, whatever. Politely. And then right before they were like, no, we're not going to do it. It's not urgent. And I still don't really know what happened. And then I, and I, over time, my gut, like whatever, it has changed based on where I was in my life, what my diet was. And it's, stress related issues and it's and they often say that your gut is your second brain so how does that factor into your practice so much yeah so i think the most exciting new way of thinking about the gut brain connection is that culturally now we've started to appreciate that the brain impacts the gut we kind of get it. We're like, when I'm stressed, when I'm, you know, I have a test the next day, I get diarrhea, I'm, I have gas, I, I have worse digestion, I feel it in my gut. And I think the important new revelation that we need to start talking about publicly is that that communication is bi-directional. So when the gut gets out of balance, when it's unwell, it's also sending a communication up to the brain and it's saying, things are not okay down here, feel uneasy so that you'll make different choices, so that you'll rest, so that you'll eat something different. And the problem is that modern life makes this broad assault on the health of the health of our digestive tract, from antibiotics to chronic stress to even maybe the fact that our water is chlorinated. There's a lot that's impacting the ecosystem of our bacteria in our gut. A lot of us are not exposed to dirt or animal feces. We're not getting all that diverse ecosystem of microbes that we evolved with. And so we're, we're missing the microbes and we're chronically stressed. So our, our digestive tracts are a mess in modern life. And I think that that's causing a lot of unnecessary anxiety. Right. I mean, anxiety is definitely felt like you feel it in your stomach. If you think about like where physically it's manifesting, I mean, it's maybe for different people, it's different, but at least that's where I personally feel it. But let's take a few steps back. What is anxiety? Can we define it? Now, when I decided to write a book about anxiety, I should have been predicting that people are going to ask me that question. <laughs> and I find I struggle with the definition. I always do a different tap dance every time. I mean, we all have a different subjective connection to that word. For some of us, it's dread, it's worry, it can be um, future tripping, anticipating potential negative consequences. Um, but I think that 
it, it shows up different for us, some of us. And diagnostically, some of us have generalized anxiety disorder. We're in a very chronic basis. We're consumed with worry. We have trouble relaxing. We have trouble winding down. We have racing thoughts or ruminative spirals. Um, and for other people, it's social anxiety. They might be fine at baseline, but then if they go to do public speaking or go to a networking event, it's paralyzing. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, they have a panic attack out of the blue. Um, and for other people, it can show up as OCD or PTSD. So there's a lot of different flavors of how anxiety shows up in our lives. And um, I think to me, if someone is subjectively experiencing their life as, as having some anxiety, um, you belong in this community of talking about anxiety. And I don't really feel like there's a need to gatekeep that or to think about, you know, what's not anxiety. Sometimes that's a complaint is that people think we've diluted the term. Right. And, but like if someone is suffering from it, it's like, let's work on it. There's nothing to gatekeep here because there's nothing unsafe about this approach. Right. I mean, that's a term now you hear. Everybody says that they have anxiety. So you, do you think that it is diluted or do you think that everybody just has their own definition, like you said? That, and I think it's the tone of our age. It is mm -hmm. the moment that we're in. And, and I think it has to do with like this moment on earth, we are experiencing what's not right as anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's actually meaningful and kind of has a call to action to baked into it. It's telling us how we need to course correct as a society. Mm -hmm. And so what's, so what's your book about? What's in the book? Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what is the anatomy of anxiety? So the book has two main parts. And the central thesis of the book is I divide anxiety into two types. One is false anxiety, mm -hmm. and that's avoidable anxiety. It's anxiety caused by basically something in the physical body getting tripped out of balance. It's usually something that causes a stress response. And it's often caused by seemingly benign aspects of modern life that we don't realize are causing a lot of unnecessary suffering. So it can be a blood sugar crash or inflammation or sleep deprivation. It could be that our digestive tract is off or we're missing our diverse ecosystem of beneficial bacteria in our gut. It can be hormone issues, micronutrient deficiencies, um, just too much phone in our lives. And all of this is causing a lot of unnecessary and avoidable anxiety. So the whole first half of the book is just how to chip away at that realistically, mm -hmm. how to do that in a way with an eye towards behavioral psychology, that it's not just, I can be like, just, you know, diet and exercise. And like, as if that's easy, but it's thinking troubleshooting in real life, how I've come up against these challenges, how my patients have, and how to realistically make little adjustments to our lifestyle so that we just don't have as much unnecessary anxiety. And it's not false to invalidate the very real suffering of false anxiety. It's false because there's a physical basis and a straightforward path out of it. Mm -hmm. And then the second half is about what I call true anxiety, which is not something we should be pathologizing. And it's certainly not something that we can gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. It is, um, it's our inner compass. It's a true north that's here to tell us, slow down, pay attention. Something is not right in your personal life, in your community, in the world at large. And it's basically asking us to acknowledge what doesn't feel right in our lives. And even though it can be terrifying, it can feel like it blows up our life. It's asking us to translate that feeling of anxiety into some kind of purposeful action, mm -hmm. take steps to address the problem. Okay. So you're saying that you categorize anxiety into two types. False is the sort of the superficial kind, something that you can take away or change. And there's nothing really that's 
wrong with you. Not wrong, but you know what? There's something like an issue at hand that you have to deal with over a long period of time. <laughs> and the true is, is, is that, is what's inside, what something is bothering you. Question though, anxiety these days, a lot of the time is treated with medicine. Are there cases though that it can be treated, in your opinion, treated with medicine? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think it's great that we have psych meds and I've had patients for whom they weren't helpful and I've had patients for whom they were life-saving and we really Mm -hmm. just have to discern what's the right path for any given person. I push back against the fact that it is the single default setting in mainstream psychiatry that sort of, we don't think creatively and we don't try to identify the true root cause. We sort of assume all depression and anxiety is a Lexapro deficiency disorder. And I think some depression and anxiety is a Lexapro deficiency disorder. And when that's true, and that's the key to the lock, it's a beautiful thing. And so when I have patients where it really is the proper way to address their suffering, and it works, and it doesn't cause an undue burden of side effects, and it doesn't wane over time, and it's just like a really good solution, it's, a, it's great. I rejoice with my patients, but I've had so many patients over the years who it works initially and then eventually it doesn't, or they have so many side effects, or they have a contraindication and they can't take it, um, or it just never worked in the first place. And for those folks, um, those folks can start to feel pretty demoralized. It can feel really discouraging to be like, this is the treatment and it doesn't work for me. So am I hopeless? You know, Am I just going to feel this way forever? And it's to those people that I really want to speak directly to and say, there's still hope. There's always hope. There's still a lot we can do. And so for someone who's their mental, their mental health issues are addressed by meds effectively, it's great. And in certain ways, they don't need me. Um, any psychiatrist will be helpful. Um, but I think there are millions of people right now that are feeling a little bit, they're suffering in silence. And they don't feel like there's a straightforward path to rectifying their suffering. And for those people, I'm here to say, let's talk. There's more that we can do. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some to my friend who is fostering kittens and it is the only thing they will eat. It comes in these pate packages and you scoop it and you just feel like you're a chef for your baby kitties and they j'adore it. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com slash DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order plus free shipping, baby. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? 
I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And they're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y.com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. So in terms of like examples of false anxiety and true anxiety, can you share some first false? Like what are some things that you would look to identify in somebody's lifestyle, the symptoms of the anxiety that you listen for that might lead you to think that there's some things that you can kind of chip away, like you said? Yeah. Yeah. And the false anxiety, it's really the low hanging fruit. Like these are quick wins. We can identify them, address them, and someone can be considerably less anxious. So a typical example in my practice, someone, I'll think of a person in particular, she came in and she was eating foods her probably her body probably didn't tolerate. So she was kind of chronically inflamed. Her digestion was off as a result. She was also, her blood sugar was all over the place. So she was relying on sweets and she was kind of always blood sugar spiking. You know. How do you know then, as a psychiatrist? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you start to watch the patterns. And if, uh, if you're eating sweets or refined carbohydrates. And then about an hour or two afterward, that's when you have that pit of your stomach sense of doom and everything feels overwhelming and terrible. And then if you have a snack and things start to feel more manageable, that's a pretty good indication that blood sugar is playing a role in your anxiety. And that is incredibly common. And it's one of my favorite things about taking this holistic approach to anxiety because it's not that hard to keep our blood sugar stable. It's not totally easy because modern life is not setting us up for stable blood sugar, but there are hacks, there are strategies we can support it and we can use to support it. And then you can go through life with stable blood sugar and it eliminates so much of the unnecessary anxiety of panic attacks for many people. So this patient I'm thinking of, her blood sugar was all over the place. She was panicking when her blood sugar would crash. She was also coming into my office always with like an extra jumbo iced coffee. And it turns out she was pretty sensitive to caffeine. And she was bringing her phone into the bed at night and doom scrolling late into the evening and then chronically sleep deprived because the alarm would go off. You're like, who? I don't know. (laughs) Who are you talking about? (laughs) All of us. That's the thing. This is all of us these days. I have a small coffee. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Totally different. And so so those are some of the factors in her false anxiety. So she was inflamed. Her digestion was off. Her blood sugar was all over the place. She was sensitive to caffeine and she was chronically sleep deprived. And doom scrolling itself was kind of playing a role in her stress response. And so we slowly, you know, supportively, it's not like 
I'm not here to be like, you're doing everything wrong and you should be ashamed of yourself. It's like, you're doing everything that we're all doing in modern life because modern life has sort of steered us all into these lifestyle habits. Let's gently, lovingly, within reach, like make little adjustments. Mm -hmm. And little by little, you're less anxious. And with each incremental improvement, it gets easier to do the next one. And at this point, and, and this was also a woman, she was on multiple medications. She was on Prozac, Ambien, Adderall, Wellbutrin, and Clonopin. So she was very medicated and birth control, importantly. So um, little by little over years of working together, she is now actually off all medications. Um, she now is just stable and well. And I think all of those false anxieties that we mentioned were contributing to her mood symptoms. The birth control also in her case was impacting her mood and her anxiety levels. So we kind of did this bunny hop where we stripped away the things creating false anxiety. And then sometimes medications became unnecessary for her and we just kept marching forward. And now she really is just stable, well, living her life. Um, and it's not always necessarily the goal to get off of meds. We just get off of meds when they become unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And she realized she could sleep without Ambien. She could focus without Adderall. Her mood is stable now without the Prozac. Her anxiety is a non-issue, so she doesn't need the Clonopin anymore. Um, and so that's been our process. So what were the changes specifically that yeah. she, not, I don't want to like give advice necessarily to other people yeah. because that's not, I'm not trying to do that. But in terms of this, what kind of things did she do? Did she curb her hours on her phone? Did, like yeah. stop yeah. drinking coffee? Yeah. So here are the specifics. So basically, because we addressed the true root cause of her anxiety. So for her, birth control actually was a big root cause. So we got her off of birth control. She now uses fertility awareness method as contraception instead, um, along with condoms when she's fertile. What led you to think that the birth control was causing the anxiety? So the birth control, it's its own whole other conversation. But basically, you know, for a long time, there have always been some women who reported that their mood changed when they were on the pill. And then they always kind of had this like gaslighty experience with their physicians where the provider would be like, um, there's no evidence for that. It's in your head. And I was certainly one of those women. So I remember just like switching pill formulations and kind of always the doctor looking at me like, you're crazy or you're hysterical or you're high maintenance until I eventually got off the pill and became my normal self again. And I was like, wait a second, that was playing a role. We now have the data to know there's a big study, a big meta-analysis that shows us that um, exogenous hormones or hormonal contraceptives um, do impact mood and anxiety levels. And the younger you start them sort of in certain ways, the more impactful it can be. And it can even be impactful beyond getting off of them. So it's not everyone. Some people do great with it. Some people report that they feel more stable on it. So we're all different. Um, there's no one size fits all to this. But if you suspect that it makes you weepier or just a little bit more labile, like your moods are all over the place, or what I see often in my practice is that um, a woman went on the pill, let's say when she was 16 for one reason or another, and that's the moment when her mental health history began. So then she found that she was depressed and she got put on antidepressant or she became anxious. And it's sort of like, if you look back, the first incident was actually the going on the pill, but we never connect those dots. We're never thinking like, it's weird, the timing that you went on the pill and then you became depressed a few months later. So you just want to look back at your chronology and think about how your mental health history tracks with when you might or might not have been taking exogenous hormones. In her case, it all started with the pill. So that was part of what tipped me off. Um, and so we experimented with going off of it and it turns out it was a huge factor for her. 
Um, that's not true for everybody. Fertility awareness method, also not right for everybody. It's, yeah. um, it's a wonderful method that gets you synced up when you really get attuned to your body, but it's not, you know, it's sort of prone to user error and um, it doesn't work as well with irregular cycles. So you really have to know what you're doing with charting your cycle and knowing when to use backup like condoms to give you an extra layer of contraception when you might be fertile or when things might be unpredictable. And then um, for her, she had to get off gluten. It turns out she had undiagnosed celiac disease, um, not just gluten sensitivity in her case, but true celiac. And then, so she was inflamed from that. Her gut was a mess from that. So she was just, you know, everything was off and getting off of gluten was a big factor. Getting her off of coffee was a factor for her. Nobody likes that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she didn't drink, so that wasn't a thing, but sometimes that's a thing. And then I just, we just changed her phone habits in one simple way, which is that she set up her phone charger somewhere other than her bedside table. So she no longer brought her phone into the bedroom with her at night and just cutting out that 45 minutes of doom scrolling right before bed, protected her sleep quality, protected her circadian rhythm. And that was enough to just make all the difference. And so she sleeps better. She's able to sort of surrender into sleep because her body, her unconscious feels safe. It's not surrounded by the doom of the internet. Yeah. And, and then it also protected her melatonin release because she wasn't seeing that blue light from the screen of her phone right before bed. Right. I can see how that, you know, just even from my own experience, how like protecting yourself from, it's not an addiction, but it's like just constantly leaning on your phone can reduce anxiety. <laughs> just creating that break or that boundary might feel very liberating. Just staying on the false anxiety. I, I read also something, maybe it was an interview with you about breathing, how that can change when you're in a relaxed state versus not, and how promoting more deep breaths, I guess, might have your brain tell your gut that you're calm or vice versa. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the breath is this other two-way street of communication, brain to diaphragm, basically. Mm -hmm. And if we were genuinely relaxed, like we didn't have all the chronic stress of modern lives, we, we had all of our fundamental human needs met, we, didn't, we weren't on deadline, if we were genuinely relaxed, which is hard to come by these days, we would breathe in a particular way where it's slow, deep, diaphragmatic breathing, and our exhale would be slightly longer than our inhale. What is actually happening for most of us in modern life is that our breathing is shallow, it's higher up, and it's a bigger inhale than exhale. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing about it is that that's the top-down communication. That is our stressed brain saying, here's how we should breathe because we're mm -hmm. in a stress response. But the brain is a little bit gullible. So if we just breathe like a relaxed person, kind of do like a four, seven, eight breath where you inhale to the count of four, hold for seven, exhale for eight by doubling that exhale relative to the inhale, what happens is it sends a communication up to the brain and it basically says, by Jove, I never thought I'd say this, but the organism is relaxed. <laughs> and so the brain believes that and a whole neurohormonal cascade ensues that basically puts our body into a relaxation response. So we can trick our bodies into relaxation. And the breath is also significant to anxiety in that if for whatever reason you're you have a compromised ability to breathe well, this can be an underlying factor for anxiety. That can be a deviated septum. It can be a narrow palate. That can be sleep apnea at night. Um, it can be some malfunction in your diaphragm. 
Um, there's a lot that can go into that, but there's a lot of ways that we have compromised breathing, especially in modern life with our soft processed food diets. We don't develop the broad arches and the wide palate. And so it's harder to breathe. And that, you know, what could be more of a trigger for anxiety than feeling like you're, you know, suffocating a little bit. Um, so that's always something I want my patients to look into is how do we get you breathing as well as possible, ideally through the nose. Right. I mean, yeah, shallow breathing is definitely like a fight or flight response. Like if you're running away from something, (laughs) your breathing is shallow, your heart rate is increased. So then going to the true anxiety, what are then examples of that that have come up in your practice? Yes. So different for all of us. I've had patients where their true anxiety was, you know this, but you kind of refuse to acknowledge this, but you're in the wrong relationship. And it's scary Uh to face that truth, but it's also pretty uncomfortable to just live in a chronic state of low-grade true anxiety from not facing that truth. So I've had patients who just needed to own up to that and, and change their circumstances. It's sometimes that our careers have become something out of alignment with our values, Um, I've had patients who their true anxiety was really just nudging them to like call their grandmother more. And I've had other patients whose true anxiety was saying like, you are here to be an activist about this cause that you really care about. Like, don't just sit here kind of feeling helpless, take action. Mm -hmm. And so it's really different for all of us. It doesn't have to be daunting or overwhelming. It can be small scale, but it's just that inner truth that we kind of know, but we kind of ignore And while we're just letting it fester, it causes this helpless, anxious feeling. But once we see it and shine the flashlight on it and transmute that anxious feeling into purposeful action, the whole feeling changes. We start to feel it's a purposeful feeling. We feel engaged and motivated rather than just helpless and anxious. What if in those scenarios, though, this person, this example person is like, breaks up with their partner, tries to do X, Y, Z, but still doesn't feel peace and now have kind of blown up their lives in a way when they could have sought out like medication or something to stabilize the chemicals in their brain. Like, how do you discern which is which? You know, like what when the narrator necessarily isn't that reliable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. It's not easy to sort of create a one-size-fits-all, how do you discern? You have to kind of know for yourself. And I say you start with a false anxiety because part of how our narrators are unreliable is when our physiology is pinballing all over the place. So if we clear the air and we're not inflamed and chronically sleep-deprived and surrounded by the doom of the internet and our blood sugar isn't all over the place and caffeine, alcohol, that when we get our physiology stable and our mind is clear then we can kind of see what still remains. That's our truth. And for some people who are like, everything's terrible, everything's wrong, I need to move, I need to change partners, I need to change jobs. Sometimes they added, they actually had to get off birth control and gluten. And then they're like, actually, things are okay. And it was an unreliable narrator. And other times they actually find themselves with even clearer conviction once they've stripped away the false anxiety. They're like, I feel good, but I know that this thing is wrong. And what I found with medication is two trajectories have happened in my practice. Sometimes someone was like, I cannot handle my work. And they're like, I'm overwhelmed constantly. And sometimes I think that our work world is in certain ways inhumane, right? Like it's asking too much of us. And sometimes we medicate to tolerate an inhumane workplace. 
But sometimes we're sensitive, but we're trying to carry out a difficult job. I've had patients go on meds and be able to tolerate their job and be able to sort of continue on an upward trajectory in their career. And that's been a really beautiful success. And I've had patients say, um, like, I think I'm in the wrong relationship. I want to go on meds. And they go on meds and they tolerate this relationship for a while. And I've had, I've had one patient in particular come back to me years later. And it turns out they then eventually got off the meds I started them on, realized this relationship is wrong, got out of it. And they were kind of like, doc, that medication really worked. And it was a terrible mistake. Oh, <laughs> Basically, wow. it kept me in the wrong relationship longer. And I don't say this to like it's it sometimes blocks us from our truth and it sometimes makes us capable of living our fulfilling life and there's no easy answers about which ones at play in any person's life so just to to kind of give people something to reflect on earlier you talked about like the environment and community as um something that might cause or reduce anxiety how does the pandemic play I mean, we're all isolated. It was definitely a very scary... I mean, it's still a little... But in the peak pandemic time, it was very scary. Are you seeing residual effects of that, those two years? Yeah, it's a mixed bag of different things. I mean, one is social isolation is a factor. As human beings on the proverbial savanna of evolution, we were never the fastest or the strongest species. We were the ones who figured out how to cooperate. And for that reason, it's hardwired in our DNA that we feel safe when we are held in community and to be socially distanced and socially isolated and staying at home, um, or even like staying at home with a random roommate that we don't get along with. This is not good for our unconscious. This can contribute to our anxiety. Um, just the collective grief and trauma of the pandemic is something that we all feel to more or lesser degrees. You know, the more highly sensitive people among us have a more visceral connection to that, and it's making people feel uneasy. Um, I think that there's also, you know, there's these little smatterings of relief, which is complicated to talk about when there's so much suffering and so much loss. But certainly, my introverted patients were feeling a sense of relief, you know, that to not go to networking functions or making small talk in elevators, like they were relieved by that. And some of them are, are struggling to re-enter life at this point. Life did slow down. Like when every, yeah. all your calendar is completely empty, it does allow some free space in your mind for the relaxing <laughs> at home in, uh, while isolated, of course. But I did see that as a lot of people said like, wow, this feels completely different because you've never experienced anything like that. This other perspective I brought to it, it was that from a mental health perspective, there was fear messaging that we were all bathed in. And to some extent, that's a public health choice to make sure that we took it seriously and made choices that protected our families and our communities. To some extent, it's the attention economy doing what it does, which is, um, you know, basically our attention is the commodity that gets them clicks and ad revenue. And so, um, they know. They, they know their behavioral psychology and their neuroscience. They know that if they prey on our fear response, we will rubberneck and stay glued. And our mental health can be the collateral damage. So I think that that also really played a role throughout the pandemic. And then this feeling of helplessness. And that was a big way that I supported my patients throughout it is the both and of pandemic health, which is this is a nasty virus. And there's a lot we can do to support our immune system and keep ourselves as well as possible when we go to potentially face this virus. So even things like sleep 
and vitamin D and sunshine and fresh air and nutrition and making sure we have, you know, very like consuming fermented foods and zinc, like these things can make our immune system more competent. And none of us is going to have a perfect immune system. We're all sometimes going to be stressed or overwhelmed or run down. Some of us are going to have autoimmune conditions or other things that compromise our immunity. It's not a perfect system, but we can do what we can within reason. And I think to not feel completely helpless, but to realize that we have some ability to keep the terrain of our body strong it was right. helpful to just not feel so powerless in the face of a scary virus. Right. And I also think the fear part of it was that it was so unpredictable and how it would affect you personally. Like if you had got it, there was such a range in how it affected people and it was random. And that part I thought was very scary and take media out of it, just the people speaking with other people. I think that definitely added to that fear. And also the convergence of a few of these different things, like the the isolation, you're losing community. But then if you wanted to be with somebody, you could not because you were then afraid of them. <laughs> that together brought it to another level, which I am yeah. assuming was an unspoken anxiety that affected all of us. So what what are the residual effects of on our mental health, on anxiety that you're seeing? I mean, there was such a precipitous rise in just numbers. One residual effect I, I see is that um, when people reach out to me more now saying like, can I get in to see you? And I am not taking new patients. And then when I go to refer to my regular referral sources, um, they're also not taking new patients. So mental health providers are just swamped and mm -hmm. people are struggling to access care even more than was already true. Um, people are more medicated now. And I think that part of what we did to just self-suit through the pandemic, like stay home and you know eat comfort foods and binge on Netflix, um, I think that's had residual effects. And we have different habits now. Some of us have kind of had some of our physical health has been chipped away at a bit. And um, I, I think a lot of us are climbing out of a, of a little bit of a hole. And so it's it's really tough, but I also think that there's been learnings. And I think a lot of us really learned a lot about ourselves and what fills our cup, what was missing from our lives. Um, we've learned about what we sort of liked about when there's less going on. And then I think we've learned a lot about grief and collective grief and how to make pro-social choices to support our communities. I also think a residual effect is the hyperpolarization and how much judgment and resentment we all hold for choices that were different than our own. And so I think we have a lot of work to do to bridge that divide at this point, to come back to our capacity for empathy and compassion and understanding. For anybody who's listening who does feel maybe anxiety from the pandemic still lingering, is there anything that you can say that might make them feel at ease in terms of how long it takes maybe to address it or to not reverse, but to feel like themselves again. Yeah. There's this wonderful book called Unwinding Anxiety by Judson Brewer, which talks about anxiety as a habit. And I think for many of us, we developed anxiety as a habit in the pandemic. So there are ways to kind of, you know, change our patterns with that. Um, I also think that we need to dust off and remember what used to fill our cup. So if you knew that you used to gather, if you used to go dancing or you went to concerts or you saw musicals or you hung out with friends and had a game night or watched a TV show together and baked muffins, like whatever it was, um, we need to get back in the habit of doing the things that really met our needs and filled our cup. And we're just, we're out of the habit of all of that. 
And my book is really here with a message of hope and empowerment that we get into places where for one reason or another, whether it's physical or psycho-spiritual, we are just much more anxious. We're out of balance and there's always something that we can do. And I really think of it like a buffet. It's not like you have to do all of these strategies, but mm-hmm. you read it and you see what resonates. You see what feels accessible or doable or when that little signal goes off in your mind, like, yeah, I think that might be it for me. Mm-hmm. And you just build it back in, but to never feel hopeless, like our moods change. Um, but I have now just witnessed in my own mental health in so many of my patients and people I've worked with through speaking engagements, through you know, things like Instagram, even I've witnessed so many people climb out of a tough spot with their mental health. So I just, I'm annoyingly hopeful about it. And these can be really difficult. You know, people can be in a really difficult spot. Things can be very dark, but I'm always hopeful that there's something that we can do to identify where we out of balance and how can we nudge ourselves back into a state of balance. In terms of like tools that maybe that you could recommend, like if somebody's in a state, like I've wound myself up and it's maybe it's a panic attack, maybe it's a little bit lower than that, or anybody who's listening, I'm sure we've experienced that. Sometimes it's now been marketed as Sunday scaries. You know, we've all experienced these things. Is there a mantra that you offer to people to repeat in their heads, or are there any type of like in the moment go to tools that you recommend? Yeah. So part of my problem is that I'm really good at preventing anxiety and I'm very (laughs) average or slightly below average at (laughs) reacting to anxiety once it's already happened. But I do have tools. I had to, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't put them in the book. So I have some tools. Um, But I tend to think that anxiety can get to a point of no return where it's like, what, you know, we kind of just have to ride it out. Um, And within that moment, one of the best tools is actually not resisting it and to say, okay, this is anxiety. This is a panic attack. This is my body not dying, but working and having a big mobilization of my heart, you know, pounding harder and faster and my breath is more rapid and um, sort of observing your body go into a, a stress response. But I think that for some people, it's splashing water on your face or going out into fresh air. Movement and outdoors tends to be pretty therapeutic. Um, some people need sensory things like putting your hands in Play-Doh or in like lentil, like dried lentils can even be helpful. Um, child's pose is helpful for some people. Pushing against a wall. I have some of my patients do that meditation where it's like, um, you know, seven things that you can see and six things that you can touch and the things you can smell and taste and feel. And mm-hmm. you sort of like, it grounds you in the present and the present moment is sort of like this garlic to the panic vampire because panic is so much about spiraling about the future. It's future tripping and it's thinking, oh God, I'm not going to be okay. I'm going to die. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to go crazy. Mm -hmm. And so when you come back to the present physical moment and ground in the body, that can be very therapeutic. A mantra I like for just not quite point of no return, but leading into it is... um, I see so much perfectionism and so much pressure that we put on ourselves. And I really like people to come back to a statement of all I can do is do my best. And that is enough. And it's true. And it's actually the only part we're responsible for is showing up and doing our reasonable best, not mm-hmm. our a thousand fifty percent effort, like bend ourselves into a pretzel best, but our reasonable best, something we can be proud of, but we can do it sustainably. 
And we don't control the outcome. We think we do. We, we try to white knuckle it throughout our lives, but it just drives us crazy. Yeah. Um, we are responsible for the process, which is showing up and doing our reasonable best. So to remind ourselves, all I can do is do my best. That is enough, is really soothing and really accurate. I agree. We just did an episode about the best advice I've ever gotten from any therapy was just reminding yourself that good enough is enough. And it grounds you in the present in that moment, like with any type of anxiety, body, perfectionism, literally like work anxiety. It's just whatever's here is good and it brings you back. So I appreciate that advice. And also the first thing that you said is sort of accepting it means not judging it. Because when we make ourselves feel bad about experiencing that anxiety, it gets it goes higher up. I appreciate that message too. But thank you so much, Dr. Vora. This has been such a great conversation. So is your book out now? Where can people purchase it? I'm assuming anywhere books are sold, but please share all of the details. Yeah, my book, which is called The Anatomy of Anxiety, uh, it's out. And it's wherever books are sold, as they say. You can choose where you want to put your dollars to support local bookshops. And people can find me on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And thank you so much for having me here. I'm really honored to get to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining me. And that is it for today's episode of Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'll be back this Thursday to answer all of your dear DST questions. Send them to DST at Betches.com. We'll answer them and call us on our DST hotline, 212-287-5650. Share a win, share a question. Tell us about your latest anxiety, all of the things. And you can follow us at Diet Stars Tomorrow. Follow me at Aileen. Follow Dr. Vora at Ellen Vora MD. And if you like this episode, please write us a review and follow me at Aileen. And we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby, Stacey Wong, and Jorge Morales Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Be sure to follow at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com. Betches.